0: So a few of us, um, there were a few priests in our communion who were having a conversation via text over the lectionary texts or lectionary passages this week. And after I kind of caught up on it a bit, it became clear, this is something that we should probably record and and put out there. And so, um, Father JP, I would love if you would just start us off um, because it was really kind of your concern about the gospel passage this week that that grabbed my attention initially
1: sure this is the 11th Sunday after Pentecost and our gospel text is Luke 13 10 through 17 and it's a story that I was telling father Chris it hit really it always hits close to home for me and I'll go into why but first I'll just read like a part of it Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with the spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, Kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, and this is the part that really shook me a little a daughter of Abraham whom Satan bound for 18 long years be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day. So this all happens. And when Jesus says this, all of his opponents were, the Bible says, put to shame. The text says, put to shame. But the crowd is rejoicing at the wonderful things that took place. The reason why this hits close to home for me is because some scholars think she had something called ankylosing spondylitis. It's a inflammatory disease that causes your spine to fuse together over time if it's left untreated. And when that happens, uh, it starts to bend and you end up literally looking at the ground for your life, I mean, for the rest of your life. And if you ever see old people, sometimes it's, it's usually in the elderly that have had ankylosing spondylitis left untreated. If you ever see people hunched over and you see an elderly person walking and they're looking at the sidewalk or at the floor, that's typically what it is. The reason why this hits close to home for me is because I believe about 15 years ago, I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis. And I reached out to Father Chris and just told him I was struggling. It it hit me in a way that I... um, it just hit different this week. And I want to just say, fortunately, my prognosis is relatively good, so I'm grateful for that. But honestly, my heart always aches when I see someone bent over with this condition. And the text haunts me sometimes or the way it can be read. And I lastly, I'll just I'll shut up after this. I, I don't feel as one whom satan has bound for 15 long years in my case 18 for her but i have asked the lord to take this away from me i was joking around i said more than three times you know like the apostle but uh i have found instead that there's been grace upon grace each and every day and i'll just shut up with that that's my story
0: now man father jp thank you for yeah just your Openness and willing to share that with us first, and then um, in this in this format. Um, let me before before we go much further into the conversation, since there's a few of us on here, and if you're listening to this, you can't see us, so it may be a little bit tricky. Um, you've just heard from Father JP. Let me just uh, kick it first. Father Preston, and then and then Father Paul. If you would just introduce yourself real quick, so we can hear your voice and and get accustomed to it for a moment.
2: Yes, um, I'm Father Preston Sharp, um, Sacrament Church, Nashville, Tennessee. We're a diocese of Saint Anthony Church.
3: Yeah. Hey, and I am Father Paul. I lead Sanctuary Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where. Uh, Father Chris Green, who is on this call with us, is also uh, on staff as our teaching pastor, and love this conversation. Uh, so many ways it could go, but I just want to say thanks to JP for Father JP uh, for bringing this story to us. Um, I've known Father JP for most of my life, and this Sorry was <laughs> <laughs> uh, this story was news to me. And I don't know how how that's possible. But um, yeah, lots of feelings and, and lots of thoughts about the Texas week.
4: Yeah, I think this is Chris Green, by the way. I think part of the power of that conversation we were having comes from the way Father JP has borne the sickness. Right. I think that's it's testament, Paul, to your experience of him that your knowing of him isn't reducible to that right or or that he hasn't he hasn't his identity hasn't been reduced to that in any way nor was this woman's i'm sure but I, I i do think jp it's it is the openness of your heart to this your willingness to kind of let the text touch you and acknowledge what's coming up in your heart as you're as you're hearing it That changes the conversation, right? I mean, we're not just simply talking about this in abstraction suddenly,
0: right? This is someone we all know and love. And I think maybe we lost Chris there for a moment. Um, But let's just continue on. It's better. (laughs) And he'll hopefully jump jump back in. Um, I don't know exactly where he was going to go, but my sense is it was more just deep gratitude, um, Father JP for, for this. So let me, um, if I can just direct this a little bit, since we're in this gospel text, um, Paul, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your observation on shame in this passage.
3: Yeah. So, uh, we're kind of in a series of a few weeks within the lectionary text that have been pretty difficult. Um, two weeks ago, we have this passage about the fear of the Lord last week. We have Jesus coming to us saying, uh, I- I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring division and this accusation of, of hypocrites. And, and then in this week as well, it's another, um, another calling out of hypocrisy. And then there's this line at the very end that says when he had said all of this, All his opponents were put to shame and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. And I hadn't put this together until until last night, but I was reading through the psalm for this week, Psalm 71, and this psalm opens, and you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. And so we've dealt with this, this concept of fear. We've dealt with this, this concept of, uh, Jesus coming not to bring peace, but to bring division. And now we're dealing with this issue of shame. And I think for most of us, when we think about shame or being ashamed, the antidote for us is just to not be wrong, right? That, that to not be ashamed is to be right, is to be, is to be correct. But in the gospels, shame ends up being juxtaposed with rejoicing that it's not so much about not being wrong, but in being able to see rightly and rejoice in what God is doing right in front of us. And this is this is at the heart of how Jesus marks hypocrisy. Hypocrisy for Jesus is not being double minded. It's not saying one thing and doing another. It's, it's a way of living where you put all of your time and all of your energy in the things that don't actually matter that you, uh, I think Father Chris calls this living by technique that you, you, you know how to read the weather, right? Going back to our text from last week, you know how to read the weather, you know how to see what's going on in the world, but you don't know how to see the person who is right in front of you. And so this is that accusation of of hypocrisy that Jesus brings to us. And so wrapped up all in that is this idea of shame. And somehow, in some way, Jesus comes and brings shame to these people. But it has to be a shame that actually opens them up to something. It's a shame that doesn't actually uh, violate them or do violence to them. And that's a kind of thing that only Jesus can do, right? Going back to again the text from last week that uh, God is the hammer that breaks the rock, but it's always the breaking of the rock to to clear out what's going to be built, right? That it's it's the shattered stone that turns into the bread for the world. Um, man, so I I've been really hung up on this this issue of shame and how how Jesus somehow. Shames us and it's good news. <laughs> so trying to uh trying to get a community to be convinced that somehow our shame uh can can lead to something good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Uh and Chris, you're back. I'm glad. <laughs> can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My Wi Fi yeah. just
4: completely crashed out here at the house. Sorry about that.
0: No worries. Um, sorry to do this for anyone listening into this conversation, but Chris, would you, would you kind of finish what you were saying to father JP? Cause I don't, I really don't want to lose that. And then let's come back to, <laughs> to what Paul just gave us. Oh
4: yeah. What I was trying to say was just that what I love about the way you're sharing with us, JP, how this text is affecting you is that it actually allows us it opens our hearts and minds up to what is happening in the text, right? It takes it away from something abstract, something merely on the page, and suddenly we feel what's at stake in it, right? That your humanity is suddenly bringing her humanity alive, and the humanity of the people in that crowd, even the humanity, or maybe more to the point, the inhumanity of the ruler of the synagogue, right? So it's it's a testament to you. That you've you've borne that yoke of your sickness the way you've borne it, and that you're allowing the text to kind of awaken these thoughts and feelings in your heart and sharing them with us. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, thank thanks for letting me. I, yeah, I, I want to say something real quickly, and you all can take this and run with it. I'm just sharing experience. That's all I have to offer today. When I press, and this is related to what we talked about earlier this week, when I first received my diagnosis, I went to, I go to the Cleveland Clinic, and there's a, uh, he's the chief rheumatologist downtown, and I don't want to say his name, but I had to wait quite a while to see him, and this is years and years ago. I show up at his office, and he uh, sits me down. And he takes me by the hand. I kid you not. This is the first time I've ever had a doctor do this where he like grabs my hand. And I'm thinking, all right, you know, I go into uh, what about Bob, Bob Wiley mode. And I'm thinking this is some kind of new therapy. I'm like, okay, hand-holding therapy. Let's do it. And he takes me by the hand and he says, how are you? And he like looks into my eyes and he says, how are you? And I'm thinking he's asking me the question of, on a scale of 1 to 10, where's your pain today? So I say to him, you know, I'm not doing well. I'm at about an eight and a half. And he laughs a little bit, like not in a condescending way, but in an endearing way. He chuckles at me and he says, no, 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 no. I meet people like you every day. And whenever I do, I know that they're coming to me probably 10 to 12 years after their symptoms have begun. Ankylosing spondylitis is a weird uh, disease in the way it manifests. And he says, you probably have waited a decade before seeing me. He was absolutely right, like literally to the year. And uh, he said to me, I ask you how you are because most of the people I meet like you have gone through such a journey. And I'm almost thinking, I don't know if you use the word shame, but here's what happens when you have this kind of disease. And I feel so bad for people who go through this experience, no matter what your condition is. Everybody wants to talk to you about what you're doing wrong. And they want to angle it at you. Like, clearly, you've messed up somewhere. And and it it, it is reduced to technique. Like, clearly, you're not doing these things. And they want to pin it on something. And there was so much compassion in this man that uh, there was a healing that took place on that day in my heart where I needed someone to say to me, you know, how are you doing? Because this has been a journey. I know it has. I don't know where you all can take that and and maybe run with it in different directions, but uh, it was a relief to me to just be in the presence of someone who had compassion on me and was going to be a part of my healing journey. And, and instead of like, you know, trying to pinpoint where I've gone wrong. So I'll just shut up with that.
0: No, I I love that. I mean, I think part of what I see here in this text is, and forgive me, the version I have pulled up doesn't actually have the verse numbers on it, but when Jesus saw her, right, that kind of initial seeing. um, But I think that's the sense of his seeing of her is even deepened um, because after there's this, this kind of um, outcry, right? And Jesus answers and says, "You hypocrites! Not each of you on the Sabbath and tithes, ox or donkey, um, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, which is that used anywhere else in Scripture? I don't, I don't think so. A daughter of Abraham, um, which I guess to me just is is a." You know Jesus naming who this is here's how I see her right here's who she is right Jesus seeing of us is the truest seeing of us and kind of making that seeing possible for any who are listening well that's
4: yeah, the so sorry go ahead for
2: no please well I I think to father Chris with what you were saying father Christopher. Um, that pattern is so significant here that he uh, I just see these verbs in a row that he saw her, he called her, and then he set her free. um and just the pattern of that, and then later the naming. So there's a a seeing, a calling, a healing, and a naming, kind of all present, really compact in this. Um and I just think about that that is the nature of God. That's who he is. and and then the point of the Sabbath is, where we find our identity. you know, The purpose of the Sabbath originally is to acknowledge who God is and who is our source and how that forms us in our lives. So the patterns and the um, laws of Sabbath were not in God's desire to control us in any way, but in the sense that they're life-giving, that this is where we find our source and our hope and our healing. And so the whole purpose of Sabbath from the very beginning is healing. So I just think seeing that in this passage is significant. And then God's desire to not only heal her, I mean, to heal her and to name her, and then also this is for all the people. This is for the people of God and the and the people of the world, that those who have been um been not not straightened out or curved over will be straightened. Um anyway.
4: Yeah. I, I think you know, I I want to hear Preston you say more about the ruler of the synagogue and how that relates to all of the opponents of Jesus. But I want to make sure too, father Paul, we don't lose the point you were making about there's a way in which God can shame us. That is freeing us from shame. Right. And, and, and scriptures cleverness, like learning to read scripture that way to recognize that when scripture is talking about the forcefulness of God's act in our life, it's never violent, never violating, but always humanizing and freeing in the way that it is for this, for this woman. So I think the, I love that you're drawing attention to that. I think we can also connect it to the Isaiah text, right? The, the Old Testament reading, which talks about those who wag the finger and speak evil rather than lifting burdens. And I think it would be good to stop and talk for a moment about what's happening around this woman that she's been bound for 18 years. She's here with this synagogue, with these people, this community. And there's a way in which they've not seen her right until Jesus sees her. And they, or they've not seen her for who she is, certainly not recognized her as a daughter of Abraham, at least as a community. No doubt there were people who did see her right to your story. Father JP, there are those in our lives who, who are present, but, It often seems to be the exception, not the rule. So maybe Preston, you can talk a little bit about that. The fact that it starts with a ruler's response, but then spreads to the crowd in some way.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, first of all, just acknowledging that. And we tend to sometimes do this as Christians. We tend to kind of create stereotypes out of the opponents and so we look at this and we kind of go well you know the the jewish perspective on sabbath was really legalistic and strict and all this and then jesus came and kind of freed us from this um but but if we notice here this is really one synagogue ruler who starts this complaint in fact i read Uh, I think it was AJ Levin, a wonderful Jewish scholar this week, who was just saying there's a variety of different perspectives on the Sabbath at this point. So this is not the Jewish perspective on the Sabbath. This is one, you know, one particular ruler who holds this. And that, but then, and you guys pointed this out in text. This isn't something I came up with, but as as we were talking about this, something about it turns from, I think Father Bill said this, from singular to plural (laughs) as it goes on, right? So so he brings up this issue. And then all of a sudden, there are multiple of opponents. So there is kind of a group here that maybe I think you said, Father Chris, that oppression is contagious. Isn't that what we said? Yeah, um, yeah, you yeah. Said? yeah. that uh, oppression is contagious. So there's more and more opponents that come from that. But then at the end, it says also the crowd rejoices. So even as his opponents were put to shame, the crowd rejoices. So I think that could be two different directions. It could be that they already held a liberating view of the Sabbath. (laughs) And so then they're being proved right. And it's okay. This is the way we all held this view because yes, Sabbath from the beginning has been about liberation and freedom and healing. And and they see that and they recognize it. Or the healing has done something to the crowds, which is another way of looking at that and, and transforming it.
4: Oh, absolutely. And I part of you know what our conversation was about is how it seems like we rarely see that, right? A, co- a community of people celebrating mercy and goodness and restoration. but it I, I just happened to have this experience last week where I for the first time spoke at Sanctuary since the doctors had kind of cracked the code on what had been wrong with me. Well, at least some of what's wrong with me it, it, as it relates to blood pressure and what had led to my strokes and the migraines and everything. And when I shared that on Sunday, like the, the sense in the room, there really was rejoicing. I mean, I felt a whole community of people delighted that I have heard that good news. And so I, I do think even though there is a lot to lament about the state of things right now, and i'm so grateful for those moments when you can sense the holiness the rightness of a congregation of a of a community of of a caregiver you know jp again your story about the doctor like that that is possible it's one of the things i love about the book of ruth you know it's set in the time of the judges and yet here you have ruth the moabite being welcomed into this community because of naomi and ruth serving naomi bringing life back to to naomi even though she thought her life was over that it is possible to live that kind of joyful life right here and right now. It, it, and pe- and there are some people who are doing it right. And, and even though there, there are opponents and there are some rulers who are rule bound, it's still possible to, to sense, you know, to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living in the language of, of Psalms.
1: Chris, can I ask you to, uh, I have a question for you. So, one of the things that you wrote back to me, Father Crystal, you said, and I love this, this really helped change my direction here. Um, you wrote, she's not the one bound, the ruler of the synagogue is. Her yoke is heavy, no doubt, but fits inside the yoke of Christ, which is light, and lightens the load she bears for those 18 years. That part where you said the ruler of the synagogue is, I think for people listening and myself, uh, could you kind of unpack that a little bit?
4: Yeah, I mean, you—you you again drew attention, my attention, to it because of what you said about your own experience that you don't feel like someone who's been bound for 18 years. And it makes me wonder what this woman thought, right, when Jesus sets her free and says, "You are loosed," and then, in her hearing, says to the to the ruler and to the community gathered there. She has been bound by Satan for 18 years. I, I I wouldn't be surprised if she had the same thought you have, which like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, I'm here at the synagogue. Like, she's not coming bitterly or angrily. Like, it's not resentment that's carried her here. And so I, I think there's a way in which she's graced. And what, what hit me is, I think there's a way in which there are things the enemy is doing against us that are binding but those things always fit within or under the yoke of the Lord, which is freeing, so when you're when you're under the Lord's yoke, whatever Satan is doing against you it it doesn't prosper right in that in in the way that we Pentecostals love to preach, right No weapon formed against you can prosper. It doesn't mean there aren't weapons formed against you, and I think that that's part of what your story is about and and my own well all of our stories, right if we tell them. You know, Father Preston, I think about all the struggles that you and your wife had with pregnancy, right? Like that's that's an oppression. That's an attack of the enemy. And yet there's grace, right? There's ways in which God is at work and all that. And I mean, we can go around the horn and talk about our own, like the, the, the attacks we've suffered, the burdens we've had, had to bear. But I think there's a way in which those can be born under the grace of God. What's really restricting, though, and limiting is what's binding up the ruler of the synagogue. Because right? that has stripped him of his humanity in some way and has made it so that he can't see her humanity or his own or Jesus's or anyone else's. And I think that that's the real bondage, right? The real bondage is is to think that the Sabbath matters more than the people for whom the Sabbath was made or that the rules matter more than the people for whom God has shaped these laws. And yeah i th- I think that's a that's a place to begin to hear what Jesus is doing here another way i mean to another way of thinking of this is even though Satan had burdened her, it didn't actually restrict her from being the person she was called to be and I think this is there's a I've just forgotten his name it'll come back to me in a moment but He was a monk from Gaza who has this wonderful line in which he says, we can do far more damage to ourselves than the enemy could ever do to us. And I think that's some of what we're seeing in this story too, is that to live gracelessly is far more restricting and binding than to be under the attack of the enemy, right? So even though she's oppressed in some way, it can't keep her from being a daughter of Abraham. It can't keep her from being a gracious presence. It just gives a particular shape to it, a bent shape to her graciousness. But if we don't rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, if we, if we become hard hearted, if we are so self-absorbed that we start to lose our humanity, that that's far worse than any oppression. But that's, that's if if we don't lift the yoke and we're the people who wag fingers and speak evil about those who are doing good, that's, that's really to be
3: bound up. There's that line in Isaiah, man, there's some good stuff in these texts, you know, if you sit with them long (laughs) enough, it's almost like they're inspired or something, man, some good stuff in this book. Uh, where it's going on talking about if you remove the yoke from among you. And then it says that the Lord will guide you continually satisfy your needs and parched places and make your bones strong. And man, if you can't preach that with this gospel text, you need a defibrillator or something.
4: <laughs> your wood is wet. As we used to say in the old school, oh, God. <laughs> that doesn't set you on fire. Your wood is wet. If you've been to the Pentecostal church, you know, you know that line.
0: That's exactly right, man. I, there was I remember the sermon with that with that title when I was twelve years old. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you guys are using track two, I know in the lectionary, and I've been doing track one, but in the Jeremiah passage, it's you know we got this in epiphany too, but it's the before I formed you mm-hmm. in the womb, I knew you, you know, and then um, there's a very similar pattern, I think, to in the gospel text where, um Jeremiah is called out uh he's seen he's called out and then he's there's a you could say there's a healing but there's definitely a naming there's a giving of an identity yeah but it's in no way easy I mean this text is often used as like yes. you know it's put up with flowers around it as a meme on Facebook before I know you knew you you know and I knew you but Jeremiah is called to a very hard life a life of suffering and of struggling and he's called to his call is to tear down and uproot and to destroy right in addition to building and planting and so it's that incredible challenge so the call of god is this beautiful wonderful healing thing and yet it's also not it's it's not easy i mean it upsets everything so
4: yeah 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 i mean i think that that sense of upsetting everything there's a little detail in the gospel that i i laughed out loud when I noticed it this week where when Jesus first sees the woman, he calls her to him. He doesn't go to her. And I was thinking like, I mean, he sees her condition, right? Like, wouldn't the polite thing be, well, go to her. Right. And this is one of the things I think is remarkable about, about Jesus is how he's, I think, endlessly kind and generous but he's not polite. And there are all these ways in which he's he is disorienting and upsetting in precisely this way, right? De- whether he's dealing with Jeremiah or he's dealing with this woman in the synagogue or the ruler of the synagogue. And I think that there's a kind of playfulness in it that we need to sense, like a, a kind of a, an awareness that Jesus has about her humanity and that our politeness hides so that And I think, Father JP, this is what you're talking about when you talk about people. They see that you're dealing with some kind of chronic, severe illness, and they either try to figure out how you're to blame for it or what you could be doing to fix it, or they condescend to you in a way that is more pity than it is respect. And as funny as this may seem at first, I think this is Jesus showing that he understands this woman is not restricted, right? Like it's an honoring of her, of her humanity. Like I, he doesn't have to treat her with pity. And the same with Jeremiah, like the difficulty of all of that is because Jesus is treating Jeremiah like a peer, right? And so much of what seems to us off-putting or disorienting about the way God engages us and the way that God engages those in the texts is that often God is calling out of us an equality that we don't know we have. That That is really disorienting. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, JP, Given just given the way people have interacted with you and your sickness.
1: Oh, I'm just shouting right now because I I felt so much of what you were saying, but I I never noticed that detail, but he does call her over, which is to say, you may be bent over, but you can still walk. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times people with chronic conditions uh, are met with those two realities that you named, Father Chris, where we are either uh, shamed for not having the right approach, the right technique, doing the right things. Everybody's got their their solution right and because you're not doing their solution they they want to basically name that as the problem is, this is why you're dealing with what you're dealing with. but then i think other folks are they reduce it to like a sentimentalism like oh, oh poor you and uh neither one yeah bring any sort of peace um but what does bring peace is when that, that very move when someone knows that you can still walk. And um, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I think one way
4: of hearing this is like his call, when she starts walking toward him, the straightening is already happening. Mm-hmm. Like that summons is already the beginning of the healing.
1: Mm-hmm. That,
4: that, that she can come make that turn. I think is, is astounding. And I, I do think we have to live with this tension that we're not going to see everyone healed, but we can see every sick person humanly and we can engage with their humanity. You know, that's one of the things that I love about Matthew 25, when Jesus is running through the list of the care that we have or have not given him. When he says, I was sick, he doesn't say, and you healed me. I was sick and you Mm -hmm. healed me. He says, I was sick and you took care of me.
1: Mm -hmm.
4: And if healing is a part of the story, wonderful. But if it's not, there is still care, there's still dignity, there's still friendship, there's still equality and respect. And I I mean, I think that that's already at the heart of what healing is. And I, I think Jesus awakened that in us, right, to realize that we're our responsibility is is not to hold in pity or blame those who are suffering chronic illnesses and not to think that if we do it right, we can fix all of that. But we can engage face to face. And I think that even though this woman has been over, Jesus still treats her as his equal, still treats her with respect. And I mean, that's obvious, but it's not so obvious, right? I mean, we, we lose, we lose touch with it. Yeah. So easily.
3: There's a, there's part of this and I'll, I'll mention all the parts that maybe aren't preachable. So if you want to check out this. That's fine. Um, the way that Jesus mentions that it was Satan who bound her Mm. and, and again, framing the Satan as the accuser and father Chris, I love what you just named that. There's a way of, of uh, engaging in people's sickness that overly pities them or that can blame them for their own ailments. And I mean, when you're looking through this passage and you're trying to find, well, who is the one who's making the accusations? It is the leader of the synagogue, that he is saying, you're not doing this appropriately, you're not doing this rightly. Um, And so I I think we do this all the time, that we see people who are in oppression, under oppression, and we, we are so quick to accuse them or to blame them for being in that position in the first place. Like, I mean, the the, the examples here are, are endless, right? Like, you should have seen this coming. You should just go do this. You should just go do that. Not seeing the person for who they are, not seeing them humanly, um, only seeing them in ways that actually humiliate them.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, this would take us too far afield, but I think a lot and here I'm talking about the people we pastor, our friends, the people we care for. There is a way of kind of being animated about oppression and injustice that still doesn't see the humanity of the people who's oppressed. It, it's possible. One of the things that I, I feel like was exposed in my own life is that my anger at injustice was more about the anger at the people I, I had grown up around who were perpetuating it than it was actual compassion for the people who were suffering it. You know, I had hatred for the people I had grown up with, but I didn't yet have love for the people that were being abused. And, and that's a different, that's a turn that I, that I had to make. And I think, I am having to make. And I think that's to, to your point, Father Paul too. And just this is a little detail, but I think it might be important textually is that she's bound for 18 years and I'm not, I don't know exactly what all we are to do with that, but I, I assume everything in scripture is significant, right? That if we're being told something that matters. And when I've, when I started to look, the number 18 comes up in the book of judges as a period of time in which Israel was oppressed multiple times, Israel is said to have been oppressed for 18 years. And I think that sets at least one way of hearing this then is that this is an ongoing spiritual battle, right? In this community, there is conflict ongoing between justice and injustice, life and death, oppression and freedom. And this congregation isn't sure which side to take, right? To your point, Father Preston, there are some in the in the crowd who feel one way and others who feel another way. And what Jesus is doing is is bringing a victory very much for the for the kingdom and the the victory of deliverance and telling us, you know, this don't forget what it is that God is doing in the world. And I I think that again, this is too far afield for this discussion, but to remember the spiritual warfare dimension of all of this and, and the way in which it works across shared our shared lives, right? It's not just personal that there's a way in which this is a battle that entire community is in, not just this woman is fighting. And their inability or unwillingness, as again as a whole, to free this woman testifies against them. Right? Jesus is essentially coming and saying, "Don't you understand?" There's a there's another a similar story. Jesus has just come off the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's a father who's begging for his son to be delivered, and the disciples cannot do it. Right? And Jesus is grieved, and I think he's grieved because his point is. This is the work you're supposed to be doing. This is who you are in the world. Like last week's text, you are gods. You are sons and daughters of the Most High. Like, Don't you understand that's who you're supposed to be in this world? People whose presence brings peace and justice. People whose lives are, are marked by liberation and rectification. And I think there's so many of us who are waiting on God to do for others what is ours to do for them. Like we're standing back even if we're willing in theory to let God do it it's ours to do and that God is at work in us precisely for that reason again, maybe beyond this conversation but I think that, that detail speaks to me about that, that the larger kind of cosmic conflict in which we, we are called to live
0: good stuff well I hate to cut it short but, Father J.P., I know you got to hit the road and get your kids. It's good to talk with you all, and thanks so much for, for joining this conversation. Chris, next week we'll have to make sure to talk about Hebrews. I already uh, got a text this last week that we failed to mention Hebrews, so now this is two weeks in a row. Mm. So we'll get to it. That's, yeah, I love Hebrews, but yeah,
4: for whatever reason, we, we haven't gotten to it. Before we jump off, though, I want us all to pray for, for J.P., and just like JP, your humanity has kind of brought the humanity of this woman and these people to life for us. I mean, I, I want I want that to happen all around us. Those who are hearing this conversation, those who are going to hear you tomorrow when you are preaching, that you know, our just as oppression can be contagious, like if we can have our attention drawn to humanity, all of our eyes can be opened, right? Like it. We just need somebody to point that out in the way that Jesus does. So, Father Paul, I want to ask you if you'll lead us in this prayer for Father JP. And when we're praying for, for Father JP, we're praying for everybody who's sharing that
3: same burden. Yeah. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, first of all, thank you for the gifts of my brothers here. Thank you for this uh, this privilege to do the kind of work that you're calling us to do and God we hold up not just our friend and our brother father JP but God we acknowledge that there are so many ways in which so many ways in which the sickness of our bodies is overwhelmed by the sickness of of our souls and so God as we engage in this work help us to have eyes to see And help us to have ears to hear what you are doing in the world to see the needs of our neighbors god to give our attention and our care our time and our energies to the things that matter god keep us from hardness of heart to rejoice with those who rejoice through christ our lord amen amen Peace,
0: friends. Thanks, everyone.